in in this in this week's portion, uh, we are we open up to the the grand exodus out of out of Egypt. Uh, the story starts off by telling how God led them out of Egypt through a different way. He didn't let them take a shortcut. And something I read in Midrashim is that the Ephraimites led a group, or attempted to lead a group out of Egypt some many years before. And there was uh, great battles and and lots of death and destruction and uh, Hashem was concerned that if the people showed up and as their journey see the dry bones in the desert, they would be discouraged and fearful and turn back. And when I when I read that, I was thinking about many of our own journeys that we have experienced in finally getting out of your Egypt and how you thought that there would be a shortcut from there to Sinai. God told them, go to Sinai, go get Torah. That's what he wanted them to do. And as soon as you heard, go get Torah, you figured, well, I'll just get it. You know, what you don't realize is your travel besets you. And often you end up going on, going in journeys and are a place that you don't know. And one of the things that we discover that one of the greatest uh, expressions of imunah, faith, is one who can put their trust in Hashem to do what he's supposed to do. Does it matter to you what happens as long as you know Hashem is in control? The problem is, is we want to somehow uh, separate out what Hashem controls and what He doesn't control, right? Like these things are all from Hashem, and these things cannot be from Hashem, right? Well, in reality, either He is omnipotent, He is all knowing, He's all powerful and in control of everything, or He's not God at all. So the point is, is if God is, if God allows things to happen to the righteous and unrighteous, what is its purpose? Its purpose to actually get you to the place or get you to the Sinai experience. That's the ultimate purpose. The vast majority of people don't go to Sinai. What do they end up doing? They end up wandering in the desert and rotting in the desert. So when the children of Israel left, they take this sort of odd, precarious route. And at the very end, they find themselves with two uh, sort of caverns or mountain areas on each side of them, the Red Sea in the front and the Egyptians in the back. No place to go. And as we learned last year and we had talked about it, how uh, the Rebbe in 1967 provided a shiur or a lecture in which he says the four... uh, uh, th- there are four groups of people that are sort of defined in that beginning story where uh, Moses offers up an explanation or an answer to a question that is not asked in the Torah, in the text. And that is, he's answering the complaints of the people. He told them to stand firm, don't fear. Remember that? Stand firm, don't fear. Watch the hand of the Lord deliver them this day. You will not see the Egyptians. You see them there, but they won't be there after, in a while. That four groups of people were the the um, uh, the people who wanted to commit suicide go into the ocean and just end it before they kill us. We can just end it all. The very same thing happened in at Masada. If you remember, when the Romans garrisons were around Masada and they were stuck, and then the Romans were finally getting up to the place to be able to invade. It took uh, I don't know thirteen months, eighteen months, or something on the siege, 
and they finally all committed suicide on Masada, the zealots. Now, the Rebbe says that this each one of the physical things that happen to the Israelites actually have a corresponding spiritual element to it. And he said the people who were saying, let's just throw ourselves in the sea, spiritually tantamount to a person who feels like that I'll just ignore everything around me and just think about me. It's, he said, he gave an analogy, he says, it's, it's like the, the tzaddik with a pelt, with a coat. It warms him, but it doesn't warm anybody else. And a person during the time of difficulty shouldn't be a person who is thinking just of himself. I'll just dive in Torah study. We all know Torah study is great. But if your whole focus is Torah study to ignore the plight of those who are around you, what good is that? And we all know that the greatest level of Torah knowledge and wisdom comes from when we interact within society and people around us. That's when Torah really gets expressed. Before class, Aurelio was talking about the effect of your living on your, your in-laws and your family's lives. And we talked about... Um, um, what was, I'm trying to think of the word that you used, the um, uh, sort of the gentleness or the, the su- yeah the subtlety in which you can live a very Torah centric life and 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 show loving kindness to other people until it, it it that light illuminates them and changes them. That second group of people are the uh, the complainers. You brought us all the way out here to die, right? Now we all know that. God doesn't mind listening to your complaining, but we all know that that is a serious lack of faith that complains, always blaming something on somebody else. Well, the complainer is the person who is always wanting to find out, always wanting to declare something is, a, is a, awry and not because of themselves, but because of somebody else, right? And then, of course, you have other, the other two groups of people in which one group said, well, let's just fight it out. Now, to be honest with you, uh, the Torah scholar and the fighter, there's nothing wrong with those things. I think people that want to study Torah, dive into it's great. But if you are wanting to dive into Torah, as I said, at the demise of those people around you in practicality, then you're going to, you're going to lose something. The second thing is the person who wants to fight. There is a time to fight. But Moses was telling them, stand down, this is not a time to fight. Why? Because they needed to see the hand of God in a way that they had never seen it before. And with that in mind, you know that there are individuals who, who when, it, when it comes time to making a decision, they just have the inclination to fight first, right? I don't know that that's bad when it comes to physicality, but spirituality, sometimes uh, to immediately jump to a conclusion can be a big mistake. Which brings us to the miraculous. We all need the miraculous in our life and, and, and ask Hashem oftentimes for, for miracles. When you see if someone's illness is sickness, you give charity and you study Torah for the sake of that individual hoping for a miracle. At the same time, we have to be cognizant that God is in charge. He's the boss. And with him being the boss, we have got to rely 100% on him, period. The children of Israel had seen amazing, miraculous acts in Egypt. But they weren't affected by it. You remember that? They were sort of secluded off by themselves. This time, 
they had to see Egypt humiliated by their very strength and power. You see, Egypt's power lorded over its people and its slaves through its army. And they were getting ready to see Egypt disappear. I mean, completely humiliated, the whole nation would be destroyed by this one act. They stand by the edge of the water. And the Midrashim says that this one unsuspecting soul who decides to go into the water goes into his knees and everybody's like, he's crazy, what is he doing? And he gets up to his chest and he continues to walk out till it's right up under his nose and all of a sudden the, the, the sea split. Hashem was waiting for somebody to make the move to go to Torah. Because what was the mission? The mission was to go get Torah. Go to Sinai. That's the mission. Don't deviate. If God said, let my people go so that they may serve me, he meant it. Meaning that how are they going to serve him without Torah? And if he says, go get Torah, then that means you are not going to be kept from getting there. So if I'm not going to be kept or we're not going to be kept from getting there, that means that come hell or high water or difficulties, we're going to make it. I think sometimes we fail to realize that there is an end game to all of this. The end game for us, especially now, is about getting Torah and re-entering into redemption. It's sort of, it's, it's a backwards deal, right? Here, we, we, we're getting Torah, we're coming to Torah as the nations, and now we're going to enter into redemption. Now, we can sit all day long and talk about bring Mashiach now and we wish that the end would come so we wouldn't have to deal with all of this stuff. But we have to start performing as if we are in that redemptive role at this time. Step into the water. It's about taking the initiative. I have been one over, you know, since my transformation to Torah Judaism have been a bit intimidated by the, the sheer enormity of what's going on in the world of Torah and B'nai Noach. It, it, uh, it's very intimidating, to be honest with you. Uh, Panina and I had a pretty long conversation about you know, just diving into going to the next level. We're working on the book together. Jason and I are working on a book. And it just seems to be overwhelming. And... To get the constant calls from people from all over the world, I had a pastor from Pakistan contact me and wants me to come to Pakistan. And I told him that I would really feel more uh, safe doing it over Skype. So he had asked that I would teach he and some of his leaders and let them ask questions. I, I, I'm, I, I'm speechless. I, I'm speechless. That's all I can say. I'm speechless. And... It's intimidating. And I know that Hashem has, has, has given me a mission where I should go. But the water's deep and it's cold. And, you know, I finally, this week, it, it just, it hit home. It really did hit home. And then when I read this text, you know, I, find, I told Melanie, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go for it. You know, um, I think that what intimidates a person most and what's most fearful is what it's going to do to you. Right. I mean, how, you know, what's it going to do to me? I, I'm you know, 50 some odd years old. And you think of slowing down, not speeding up, not adding to the pace. And and I could just imagine some of the Israelites when they left Egypt thinking, why in the heck are we going south when our land is north? 
Why are we... Moses, you've taken us out here to kill us. And I am one of those people that have stood at the edge of the water thinking, God, have you brought me out here to destroy me? Has worked me to death? What's the deal, right? Well, obviously, I don't believe that. And I do believe that God has given us a goal in mind, and that is to bring universal Torah to the nations. And it's happening, and it's going to happen quicker than we expect. And knowing that there are individuals being aligned to join this community and to help us, I'm blown away. But let's talk about for a moment this idea that miracles can or cannot build faith. We've often heard, if I could just see a miracle, my faith would be restored, right? Israel sees the, see, not only sees the hand of God in all of Egypt and, and the, the battle against the gods, right? They see the sea open up. They walk across on dry land. And then God lures the text actually said he, he, God cast the Egyptian army into the sea. Like he picked them up and cast them. It's, it's, the Midrashim says that he, he uh, lured the head horsemen. They just couldn't see that there was any danger at all. They thought, well, shoot, if they're crossing, we'll get, we'll get across. Lured the armies in and covered them over by water. So when the... Israelites get on the other side, of course, the great song of Moses, Miriam, they're singing and dancing, says, according to the sages of blessed memory, the angels wanted to sing a shir to to God, right? They want to sing this great song of joy. And Hashem said, nope, not while they're crossing the Red Sea. And then when they get to the other side, they begin to sing. They're singing this amazing song of miraculous survival and to see the bodies of the Egyptians washing up on the shore. And yet, just a few days later, they're worshiping a golden calf. Explain that to me. They didn't see human nature. Do what? Human nature. That's a good one. What did you say? They didn't, they didn't see a miracle right then. They've seen miracles in the past. Right. But they were looking for women there. They needed something. They okay. Lost their connection. Very good. They lost their connection. They wanted to see a miracle. Yes. So there was all kinds of levels of spirituality. Absolutely, yeah. And I would say that Israel was probably at, at in you know at some level, maybe an infancy stage. So let's talk about and think about these ideas for a moment. How can you go from a miracle like that to worshiping a golden calf? Now, let me first make straight that the sin of the golden calf, what it actually is, most people outside of Judaism don't know. They think that they were worshiping Uh, a bull, or the image of a bull. But they were actually worshiping Hashem, God, and they were looking to the image of the bull as to be the focus of their adoration to the creator of the universe. That's idolatry. So angered God that he wanted to destroy them. The people see a miracle, and then they get to Mount Sinai, the miracle doesn't sustain them. Which proves a point. Miracles, signs, and wonders do not build faith. They don't build faith. At the moment they inspire, at the moment you feel an elevation of faith. But what builds faith? Torah and its practice. But the problem is, it's human nature. 
If you don't follow Torah and continue to follow it, your faith is weakened. How do we know that and how is it evident? As we go through the book of Exodus and we approach Deuteronomy, one of the things that we're going to see that's going to be very profound is how the people, on a regular basis, parts of them would rebel. We have Korah's rebellion. We have uh, the people crying and lamenting because they were so scared they were going to enter the land and be destroyed by the giants. You remember that? You have all types of acts of lack of faith. That's not on everybody's part. But you and I both see that if miracles alone was good enough, then it would have sustained them. Which tells me to this day, and I know there's a lot of people within um, some religious world, that they're constantly looking for a miracle. And the reason why they need a miracle is because they they say it builds faith. And of course the counterpoint to that is, well, if you didn't get a miracle in your life, you don't have enough faith. I was like, okay, that's counterintuitive there a little bit. It's like, okay, then I need a miracle to have greater faith. So who knows? But we know that the Israelite people needed, needed their Torah. And yet we have a history of the Israelite people who somehow disconnect from the illumination that comes from the Torah and find themselves in the same situation. The ten tribes, the ten northern tribes that were in Egypt, the nation had been divided into the southern tribes and the, and the northern tribes. The, the leader, the spiritual leader and the leader of the ten northern tribes chose not to allow his people to go to Jerusalem for, for a temple service, a temple worship. So they took and built an altar. Actually, the altar was on the same site as a pagan altar. And there they built those altars. God said, okay, it's enough, you're out, you're gone. And the the text says that uh, it was like a bill of divorcement. Now, the beautiful thing about that is that God is going to take his, his children back. He's going to bring them back. We're living in the age where we're seeing that already. But that lack of connection brought cut, brings about idolatry. In every case, a person who loses his connection with God will immediately turn to idolatry. Period. Now let's look and examine for a moment, what is idolatry? What is idolatry? Can one say, or no, do we know that there are people out there that say, yes, I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but yet they clearly practice idolatry? Of course we know. Is it, now we're going to take it a a step further. Is it possible that a fellow Jew can practice idolatry? How would that be? Think about it. Now, I'm not even talking about going into another religion, right? In anything, I mean, you know, the star of David. Right. The elevation of anything, of anything that is not Hashem. Why? Because Hashem is one. The Chad, that concept of a Chad, really is so powerful and so strong that says that there, there, nothing exists outside of Hashem. So if I elevate anything that is not Hashem, to a place that occupies my time more than Hashem, then I am practicing idolatry. Period. A job can become like idolatry. My sports activities can become an idolatrous, idolatrous thing. Television can become idolatrous. Yes, absolutely. What? Oh, don't even start on Facebook. All right, now. <laughs> yes. At what point do, um, does it, is it just materialism more than, than idolatry? Because... I know that um, that we I've had uh, this 
discussions with with um, you know people that don't believe that we do, and you know they talk about that that you know that there's idolatry everywhere. And my response was, you know, a lot of that is you know because they, they talk about you know you can be in love with your car. It's like man, that's just materialism. Well, no, it is materialism, right. oh, absolutely. Because their their response to idolatry, saying hey, you got to be careful if you put somebody in the place of God, and their their response is. Well, hey, you know, we all have idolatry because, you know, you could be... Well, no, but that's, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but yeah, I, I think I agree with you 100%. It's like, just because I drive a car and I like a nice car doesn't mean I'm worshiping the car. That's not what we're talking about. Yeah. My deal is, hey, that's not idolatry. To me, that's more materialism. Right. Because, you know, I'm not asking the car. I don't pray to the car. I don't, <laughs> no. you know, I don't do these things. So that was my response to it. Right, but if I, let's say, for example, I go out and spend a lot of money on my cars. I have the money to do that. <laughs> But I give no. I talk to traffic lights, so I don't know. You know. Some people take better care of their material things than the people that they may live with. Right. Well, this that's. They may get after their drums and be careful that nothing should touch it or whatever, and spend time practicing everything in a sense that set of drums become. No, no, it becomes it it becomes an icon in their life. Right. So here's the example. I buy a car. I can afford it. Okay, it's nothing wrong with having a nice vehicle. Right. And I'm constantly out washing it and polishing it and showing it off and driving. I don't give to charity. I don't study Torah. Right. But I still believe there's only one God. Right. And I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, the problem is, is you really can't. Belief is not. Uh, Judaism and Imuna and faith and belief is not static. It's an active faith. That's what Imuna really can be defined as active faith. Meaning, I believe by my demonstration, by what I do. Yes, sir. Could yourself and your self work? Oh, yeah, by all means. Absolutely. Let let me tell you. Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, what is the greatest impediment to actually performing the mitzvahs? Is when you think, oh, this is too hard. I can't do this. I don't like doing this. This is so much trouble. I have to go through and be so picky about my food. That's the thing that I hear a lot of times is criticism. You're so picky about your food. I'm like, no, actually, Hashem is. I just have to follow his deal. Oh, absolutely. Right. So your Yetzirah, at some point when it starts being in control, it's, it's a God, a deity, you know, it's like an entity controlling you. It's a powerful thing. So with that being said, what we have to challenge ourselves in this society is to not be duped by the, the um, oh goodness, the, uh, the material world that wants to prove to you or make you convinced that you need all of those things to somehow be happy and be satisfied and secure. And in reality, we just need to put our trust in Hashem. Just got to put our trust in Hashem. Yeah, really. At another level, too, is you become a slave to your five senses. Right. And, and that's exactly what the, the, the um, at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, they wanted to physically see something. Right. And, and you, you maybe even hear it because they, they say they talk, it, it literally moved and it was animated. Right. Right. So, um, so same thing with us is that we rely on our five senses, which relies on this material world. Right. Not, not our spiritual senses, then that's where the problem is. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, 
for some reason, we feel like that we have to be stimulated by our senses to be convinced. And there are people out there, and I've heard people, especially, uh, you know, avowed atheists, they'll say, well, if God would just do X, Y, Z, I would believe. And then I would tell them, well, then he's not going to do it. <laughs> he's just not going to do it for you, right? Well, yeah, we were supposed. We knew we were going to. We knew what we were supposed to. But at the same time, was it the right timing? Was it the right individual? Well, I mean, yes, ma'am. To what Aurelio said, I never thought about this until just now. But of the five senses, they wanted to experience it, right? Right. So in the end, what did Hashem do? He ground the gold up. Right. Water, right. Drink it, drink it. And that completed. And yes. Right. I mean, no, it's exactly it. In, in closing, the Rebbe, the Rebbe talks about uh, experiencing Torah with all five senses. It's an interesting idea. What is the counter to the material engagement of your, using your senses? And that you're constantly being lured by your senses. Well, the Rebbe says that what an individual should do is begin to experience and to elevate Torah through the five senses. On Shabbos at Havdalah, what do we do? We light the candles. We see the illumination. We smell the wax. We smell the spices. Right? All of those things, we're engaging Torah. We, we elevate our sense of hearing by hearing lectures and hearing uh, stories of the great sages of Judaism. Our mouth tastes taste the great pleasure of, of, of food when we do a bracha and a blessing. You see, that's elevating it. That's putting the five senses in its place. Fire. Fire touch, yes, exactly. At the heat coming off the fire. So in every way, we have to redirect our senses and filter the things that come to our senses. What do we watch? What do we listen to? What do we think about? How, you know, what are we smelling and observing in our environment? And we've, we, we've said this a lot, and I think maybe even Panina mentioned about um, experiencing God in, in elements in, the nature, in nature. Did she mention? I think she mentioned that. Uh, the closest I've ever felt to God was um, in the desert during the war, right? Because it's like there's nothing between you and the Creator. It's just all... Sand and sky and stars. It's the most beautiful thing to be in the desert. To go out on top of a mountain. Have you been to, um, what's the name of the mountain in Colorado where you can see all the states? Uh, no, Colorado. I'll think of it. I can't remember. But you stand up on the top of it. Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak. You stand up on top of it and you see like uh, three or four different states. It's amazing. It's amazing. Elevation so high, you, you, it's hard to breathe. It's an amazing thing to see God in creation, but it's not just that. It's seeing Him every day of your life, sensing Him every day of your life, hearing a word, hearing an idea, talking about Him. On, on Shabbos, I was by myself, and my wife wasn't there, no stimulation, no talking. And after it was over with, I told her, I said, Whew, this house was quiet without you. And she says, well, the mouth of the South will be back soon, so enjoy it while you can. All right? But what I wanted is I wanted dialogue. I wanted to like talk to people about 
stuff, Torah. I wanted to like just elevate the moment, and it was really quiet. And so it's really important that as a community we do not allow ourselves to be robbed and, and, and to be convinced that we're looking for God in a miracle in reality. He's given us the greatest miracle, and that's the revelation of His Torah and the knowledge of God. So that concludes this year. Any questions?